Good afternoon, everyone. A very warm welcome to Crash Course Economics, or welcome back. Nice to see you all here. So today we'll feature the second webinar of our fourth Crash Course series on Rangier and Monopoly Capitalism. I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself in the chat, so just put your name there, perhaps where you're based and which institute uh, you work at. My name is Sarah, I'm a project manager at Sustainable Finance Lab and at the Transnational Institute, TNI, and I'll be your host today, together with Rodrigo Fernandez, who's a researcher at SOMO. And behind the scenes, we have Jeremy Krollsmith, our web developer, and Jenny Pannenbecker, who's absent today, our communications officer at SOMO, who are working very hard to make this webinar a success. So before we kick off, uh, let me introduce Crash Course 2 really briefly. So we're a collective of engaged activists and experts from a number of organizations, and we united at the start of the COVID crisis in order to understand how COVID changes the world and reflect on the challenges we're faced today and possible solutions. Of course, today we have a multiple crisis, so we're reflecting on that as well. Uh, and Crash Course is a platform designed to open up uh, a debate, an interactive debate on how we can move out of this multiple crisis towards achieving social, economic and ecological justice across the globe. In order to do that, we're inviting global experts to break down complex issues and make them accessible to you all so that we can shape our economic system in a just and democratic way. And our goal is to democratize knowledge and give you the necessary tools to change the world because we first need to understand the world, of course, before we can change it. And in this series, this time, we will be discussing how a few giant uh, corporations gain significant control over market access, technology and resources, uh, which allows them to extract increasingly substantial rents to the detriment of smaller competitors, while also undermining more stringent regulation and our democracies. Uh, there'll be four uh, webinars in this series every two weeks, and in each webinar, we will provide you with a one hour crash course on a specific subject that makes you understand our contemporary economy and society a bit better. Uh, if you miss out on any episode, you can watch all our former webinars on our website, crashcourseeconomics.org. Uh, and of course, of this session, there will also be a recording, a podcast, and a summary. Rodrigo, up to you. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Sarah. Um, so for those who do, who do not know us, uh, we started a few years ago during the pandemic. Um, we started out with uh, a series of monetary policies uh, on why uh, central banks had to save capitalism again. Uh, the second series, still during the pandemic, was on the debt crisis in the global south, uh, which continues looming uh, and evolving. Um, a third series was on uh, big tech and uh, techno-feudalism and democracy. Um, so in this fourth series uh, is dedicated uh, on rentier capitalism and monopoly capitalism. Uh, last time, two weeks ago, we had Cory Doctorow. So we discussed uh, digital uh, digital monopolies uh, and uh, what to do about it. Uh, so and today uh, we have uh, Brad Christophers and we will be focusing uh, on rents and, and asset managers. Um, in two weeks time, we will have uh, Nick Dearden and we will be talking about pharma, big pharma, and the types of uh, rentier capitalism forms, shapes you find in this sector. Um, and the last uh, episode will be uh, with uh, Angela Wigger. Uh, with her, we will be discussing uh, yeah, how competition policy has become part of the problem 
how to fix it, uh, and 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 yeah, the deeper political economic issues uh, surrounding monopoly capitalism. So, uh, Sarah, it's up to you. Yeah. So before we go into details regarding our uh, speaker and his view, let me just briefly explain uh, the setup of the webinar, which is a common drill to you, I hope. Uh, so Rodrigo will shortly introduce today's speaker, and thereafter we will take more or less half an hour the time uh, to ask the speaker questions. Uh, but this is, of course, an interactive platform, so we will also have time for questions from your side that will be read out loud by Rodrigo and me. Uh, and you can put all your questions in a special Q&A tab that you'll find on the bottom of your screen. If you like a question, you can also upvote it with a thumbs up, and then we'll make a selection based on the most upvoted and relevant questions. So if you have a question, please put it in the Q&A tab, and in the meantime, you can also introduce yourself in the chat. We will finish exactly at uh, 5 o'clock CET. Rodrigo, back to you. Uh, yes. So, um, yeah, just to briefly introduce uh, Brett Christophers. He is uh, a professor uh, of geography uh, at Uppsala University. Um, he is, um, yeah, an extremely productive uh, academic. Uh, he has written uh, a large number of uh academic papers, uh, but to the wider audience, he may be known for his books. Uh, he's written six or perhaps already seven books, um, and, and we will be discussing two of those books today. Um, a new book coming out also just, I, th I believe, one of these weeks uh, on green capitalism uh, and why it won't save us. Uh, we would like to perhaps discuss in our next series when we will be discussing um, yeah, the problems of green capitalism and climate change. Um, but uh, for today, um, yeah, so we will be discussing uh, two books uh, he wrote for Verso. So one, a rentier capitalism who owns the economy and who pays for it. Um, and uh, the other book is Our Lives in Their Portfolios, Why Asset Managers Own the World. Um, so, uh, Brett, could you join us, please? So we have an enormous, uh, um, yeah, ground to cover uh, today, uh, and 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 I'm sure we will not be able to discuss all our questions, uh, but uh, <clears throat> let's see how far we get. Sure. Uh, Thank you yeah. for having me. First of yeah, all, yeah, well, and and just great for you to to uh, yeah to be here. Um, yeah. Also, just just before we start, uh, I think uh, just the last two weeks we have seen. Um, yeah, a number of uh, book reviews coming out and uh, symposia discussing your book. Um, just this week, I saw um, uh, the assistant professor from Leiden University, uh, Natasha van der Zwan, uh, who wrote an article for the Journal of Cultural Economy. I'm, I'm sure you, you've seen it. Cédric Durand has, has written something. So there's a lot of discussion uh, and a lot of praises uh, for your book. But uh, we would like to start with sort of yeah, more of the, the basics, uh, because we are at a crash course. Uh, and that is about um, yeah, what the difference is between economic rents uh, and profits uh, on the one hand. Um, so yeah, basically, so where do we find these rents? Uh, and, and secondly, um, so go back to the to the to, to this book. Yeah, here you yeah, you 
you show some 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 intellectual history debates surrounding rents, different uh, schools of thoughts uh, about rents. Could you walk us through and um, yeah, why is it important these different opinions and, and positions on rents? Uh, and what is your own position? Sure. How should we deal with this? Okay. Um, nice, nice, big, big question to start with. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to try and um, sort of um, introduce the topic as as clearly um, and straightforwardly, but also without kind of dumbing it down as I as I possibly can. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that to take the very last part of your question first, the question of why this is important. Um, I mean, I think there's two, there's there's two at least two reasons. So one is that um, you know it's pretty impossible to navigate debates about capitalism and about the economy, whether historically or today, without having a grasp of what people mean when they talk about rent and when they talk about profit. So these are some of the most commonly invoked and employed terms in in economic description and analysis. So if you want to come to terms with what's going on in the economy, you pretty much have to have a grasp of um, what people mean when they use these terms. So that's one reason. And I guess the other one is, and I would argue that um, rent, at, at least as I understand it, um, it is, is a very important and arguably increasing part of contemporary capitalism. And so if you want to come to terms with with what capitalism is, then you need to understand um, what rent is, at least by my understanding, what what rent is, um, and and why it's it's such an increasingly important uh, thing. Okay, so so first of all, kind of what do, what do we mean by rent? What do at least what do people people understand by the term rent, and how that how might that differ from profit? I think I think you know without wanting to oversimplify an incredibly complex and kind of contested set of debates and intellectual traditions i think it's broadly fair to say that there are there are two main understandings of economic rent and they kind of originate in the same place historically in terms of excuse me in terms of economic theory um but they kind of headed in very different directions from those uh, shared beginnings so the first one and I think, and and the one that is common to what you might call mainstream uh, economists or kind of orthodox economics, is an understanding where rent is kind of a surplus, and it's specifically a a form of surplus profit. So, if firms generate profits through their activities, um, what um, mainstream economists understand by rent is essentially a, a surplus profit, so a, a profit that is incremental to a kind of normal or average level of profitability. And that surplus, that excess profit or rent, is typically generated by virtue of an absence of competition. So if normal profit is um, the level of profit that can be obtained by firms in the presence of competition, if you begin to take that competition away, which is to say if you begin to have conditions of monopoly or oligopoly power in the economy, then the excess profit that is available by virtue of the absence of competition is what is typically understood as rent. So in that tradition, 
rent and profit are not sort of different things. Rent is a a form of surplus profit rather than an ad, rather than something different from profit. So that's the first one, and that's kind of the mainstream understanding. The the second understanding and 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 the understanding which I kind of cleave to in in what I've written about this stuff is an understanding that is. It is circulates instead amongst what you might call kind of heterodox economists. So it's people that are interested in the economy, but to try to understand it in ways differently from mainstream economic understandings. And and there, rent is something rent is something different. And essentially, what rent is there is 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 income that is generated by virtue of control, ownership or control of other means, um, of some kind of scarce asset of some kind. And that asset um, can be kind of naturally scarce in the form of, say, I don't know, natural resources of some kind, oil or gas, or it could be um, an asset that is essentially kind of artificially rendered scarce by virtue of, say, legal devices of some kind or another and those assets can be of varying different kinds now historically if you go back to you know the early years of economic theory then the classic rent generating asset was land and and landed property of various forms um and then increasingly i guess over time um, people have added different kinds of assets into that understanding of things that generate this particular form of income called rent. Uh, so financial assets have, have increasingly been understood as assets where you can earn this income in the form of rent by virtue of controlling those assets. But it also now includes things like natural resources, so minerals of various kinds, uh, and includes things like intellectual property, so patents, trademarks, copyright, and so on, which are, which are classic forms of, of of where the scarcity I mentioned earlier is is a scarcity that's not natural; it's created through uh, through law and through the enforcement of those laws. Um, but also all sorts of other assets. So, and going, you know, going back to what you were talking about uh, with the previous crash course that you did with Corey. Um, so, lots of people now would understand things like digital platforms as rent generating assets because control of those platforms and control of the commerce that takes place on those platforms essentially allows the owner of that platform to generate incomes purely by the fact that they control those platforms, whether it's Airbnb or whatever else it might be. Um, and then also things like infrastructures, so uh, networked infrastructures, infrastructures for the delivery of important utility services like water services, um, electricity and other energy uh, forms would also be thought of as, as rent-generating assets of one kind or another. So that's the understanding I I um, subscribe to in the book, which is, as I say, is very, very different from the mainstream economic understanding. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, um, as far as I know, there are no clear-cut methods to, to, to calculate to present rents empirically from existing 
financial accounts. Do, do, do you think that that is a problem when we discuss uh, rents and, and its problematic nature, uh, when we try to discuss it with policymakers or uh, if we try to prob- problematize it? Mm-hmm. No, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a good observation and a good question as well. I mean, I think the observation is true. So if, if, if you go to, say, the national accounts uh, for a particular country, whether that's the Netherlands or the UK or wherever else it might be, you, you, you cannot simply go to those accounts and look for a line called rent that will um, tell you the amount of income that uh, different economic entities within that nation are generating um, if you understand rent in the kind of capacious way that I've just described it here. So no, you can't do that. You have to, if you want to um, quote unquote measure rent, you have to be quite creative about the way you go about doing that. Um, and and you have to be quite um, kind of entrepreneurial in terms of finding the relevant data and interpreting the relevant data. And yes, of course, that's a that's a problem in the sense both, A, that's t- time-consuming and, and painstaking work. B, it means it's inherently contested because, um, you know, it, it, if you have to be creative and entrepreneurial in terms of how you put together those those measures, then it becomes very easy for people to say, well, we don't agree with your definitions. We don't agree with the way you've kind of passed this data. And then C, of course, policymakers don't have very long attention spans, so they don't want to be presented with data that you then have to spend, you know, half an hour elaborating how you've how you've actually put that data together. They, that's not what they're interested in. So yes, it's yes, it's it's problematic. And I think the other and I think the other thing I would say is that as you know, as I and other and other people kind of broadly on the on the on the left working within economic theory understand it rent is is ultimately not something you can put a specific number on it's just you can't really do that and and there are lots of reasons for that but the the main one and i think the most important one is the following which is that if you understand rent in that way ultimately all forms of income have have rent elements of of some degree or another um by which I mean that the, the boundary between what is rent and what is not rent is not a kind of a hard and fast line. It's it, it's it's blurry. And I'll give you an example of that. So, um, you know, a, a company, a, say a pharmaceutical company, uh, you know, I like to link to your other, your other webinar. So uh, this is a link not to the one before, but to the next one. Um, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical company that is generating income through selling medicines that are protected by patent, uh, pat- by intellectual property patents of some kind or another, and and if you understand the the income that is generated by virtue of those patents as rents, which I think we should, then you know how do you distinguish between the income that you are earning that is earned by virtue of your employees, um, you know, developing these these medicines going out on the road and selling these medicines on the one hand and the income that is it, that you that you are earning by virtue of the fact that you have these patents in place that protect you from competition ultimately you can't draw you can make various attempts to do that 
through various different but there's no hard and fast line between the two it's a judgment at the end of the day is where one ends and the other one begins and i would argue that's true of all essentially all forms of capitalist income of, of one kind or another they all have some rentier rent elements and in some cases they're tiny and in some cases they are essentially almost all rent you know rent on housing for example is is essentially all rent as I've understood it, but then someone is always doing the work involved defining tenants and you know making sure the tenants make their payments and so on. So there's always there's always a, a combination of the two, and that makes measuring it very very important. Last point before you come back in. Having said that, I still think that it's possible to make arguments about kind of directional trends in a, in an economy. I think we can say, look, this economy is becoming more and more oriented towards rent type incomes than it was historically but but putting hard and fast numbers on it is very very difficult and yes that's a problem so yeah reflecting on the kinds of societies we live in i think another important distinction in your work is the distinction between asset manager capitalism and asset manager societies right so could you explain that difference also reflecting on uh, the understanding of of rent you just gave yeah. Okay. Again, another another very big question. I think the best way I can start to answer that question is the following. So, so, so the argument I made in the first of the the two books that Rodrigo held up, the 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 rentier capitalism book, is that um, is that capitalism in recent decades, and I focus specifically on the UK because I think it's kind of a a, a classic case of this, but it's not the only case. Um, capitalism in recent decades has become more and more about rent and more and more about the the actors who are typically corporations, but not only corporations, who whose income consists primarily of, of earning rent of various forms from intellectual property from land from financial assets whatever else it might be from intellectual property um from natural resources and so on so rent has become more important to to, to contemporary capitalism and rentiers which are economic actors whose income consists primarily of rent have in turn also become more important and the book talks about some of the reasons why that might be what kinds of policies have um, precipitated the rise of rent and rents and rentiers. So that's what the first book does. Now, what the second book, the asset, the book about asset managers does, is very closely linked to the first book. And what I mean by that is that when I was doing the research into the first book, one thing that became increasingly apparent to me while I did that research but which I didn't explicitly address in the Rentier Capitalism book, was that I kept coming across this particular set of actors, a, a particular type or category of Rentier Corporation, which was asset managers. So when I was looking at the UK and when I was looking at the question of, you know, who owns the land and property and earns the rents from it? Who, are, who owns the financial assets? Who owns the infrastructures that English and Welsh uh, households depend upon for the delivery of their water, for the delivery of their energy, 
who owns the transportation networks and so on. I kept coming back to these actors that I was not particularly familiar with, which were asset management institutions. And I kept coming back to a particular group of them, uh, not least the the Australian uh, asset management um, uh, Macquarie, again, who I was not particularly familiar with before. And so they kind of put this seed in my head. And that's how the second book come, came about, which was, look, I want to actually spend some time now focusing not on rentier capitalism in its totality, but focusing on this particular group of what seemed to be very, very influential and very, very powerful rentier institutions, asset managers. Now, so what that second book focuses on, um, the, the the our lives in, in their portfolios book is is the is 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 a a very important phenomenon, and that phenomenon is essentially the growing control by asset managers like Macquarie, but also the likes of Blackstone that many people will have heard of. Uh, and a Canadian firm called Brookfield Asset Management, another big asset management firm, the growing control by these types of asset managers of the, the, the essentially the physical things, the physical systems in which our daily lives are basically embedded. And and I focus it on particular in particular on two types. The first of those is housing um, of various different forms. So that can be you know, apartments, it can be uh, detached houses, it can be student housing, um, it can be care homes, it can even in the US case be mobile home communities. So housing on the one hand, and then various forms of essential infrastructure on the other hand. So energy infrastructures, transportation infrastructures, telecommunication infrastructures, water and wastewater infrastructures. And then also social infrastructures like hospitals uh, and schools. So that's what the book looks at, is, is the fact that these infrastructures and these different forms of residential property have increasingly in, in recent decades, but particularly since the financial crisis, come under the ownership and control of asset managers. And that really wasn't happening to a significant degree before. So that is what I mean by the concept of asset management asset manager society is a society ours essentially in which in which social life is embedded in these infrastructures physical infrastructures that are owned by asset managers and 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 what i do in the book and this kind of gets back to where your question began is i i distinguish that from what other people have increasingly referred to as asset manager capitalism and 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 because what they refer to there is essentially not um, the control of these very socially influential and socially important physical infrastructures, physical assets by asset managers, but rather the control of financial assets by asset managers. Um, so what they're talking about there is when financial ass financial uh, uh, is where sorry is where asset managers control ownership of growing amounts of financial assets like stocks and bonds. Uh, and, and there, the focus is, is actually typically on, on a different set of asset managers because they have different specializations. So there, the focus tends to be on the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street, the so-called big three, who between them 
you know, own and control on average about 20% of the shares of every single company listed on the stock market, but they tend to control them in a very passive way. So they control them through the, the so-called index funds, which just hold them because they want to, They they uh, these funds, they essentially replicate um, the ownership of the big stock market indices in the US. And, and, and you know, they own thousands and thousands of shares in these, uh, thousands and thousands of companies through these index funds, but they do it very passively. They don't get involved typically in what's going on with those companies. Whereas what I'm talking about in these book is they don't own five or 6% each of these companies. They own the assets in their totality. They control the assets. They decide um, the amount that you pay to rent the housing that you own. They control the amount that you pay uh, in terms of a toll to go on the roads that they own. Uh, so they control these assets in their totality and therefore they control a significant aspect of our lives because our lives are dependent upon these assets. Uh, and just I'll finish that question by giving you kind of an indication of some of the numbers involved. So Macquarie, the first of those uh, asset managers that I mentioned, it estimates that it controls, owns and controls infrastructures on which around 100 million people around the world rely every day to go about their lives, whether it's telecommunications infrastructures or transport infrastructures or whatever else it might be. So they have a huge effect on our lives without almost all of us even knowing it. So I would guess that 99.9% .9 of those 100 million people have no idea that the infrastructures that they rely upon every day and to whom they make payments are controlled by Macquarie. Most people would have no idea that that's the case. Yeah, so <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, so basically, yeah, it is a very clear distinction between uh, the large numbers we find uh, with with BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard owning shares on stock markets and bonds, um, massive trillions of dollars uh, that are managed by them, and then. Uh, seemingly much smaller amount in the hands of these other asset managers, but they have a very direct control and, and they they, uh, they they do very different things with their assets. They actually try to extract uh, yeah something from them. They need to 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 manage these these assets, they need to sell them, keep on buying them, etc. So there's a whole world out there that you try to describe. Yeah, and, and I think and that's very. I think that's very well put, Rodrigo. It's a it's a completely different business model. So while so while some of them and Black Black Rocket is is a good example. While some of them do operate in both those worlds, um, and many and many people might have heard that BlackRock recently signed this deal to buy one of the world's biggest actors in the infrastructure control world. Historically, BlackRock, it's been a tiny part of BlackRock's business until now. It's been predominantly in that other world. And, and so they're very, very different business models. And the people at BlackRock that work on those two different things, they're completely different groups of people running completely different funds and doing completely different things with completely different incentive mechanisms in place. So it's very, very important to understand that. So but if we look, then look at the, uh, the assets um, that are trading hands, uh, shares and bonds, I mean, these are markets that have been out there for 
a long time, for centuries. These other markets, uh, yeah, they, they are very recent. Uh, uh, Childcare, uh, housing, uh, very intimate parts of society Correct. have been bought by these private equity funds. And so the question I had in mind is, so can we understand this without uh, understanding the role of the state in, in enabling these, 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 these private equity funds to enter? into these domains of our society? Uh, no. I mean, a simple answer is no. Um, and, and I guess there are, t there are two parts, I suppose, to that to, to answering that question that I would highlight. I mean, and the first of those is, is simply that it's essentially um, the, the likes of Blackstone and Macquarie and, and, and Brookfield can and do buy up housing, mobile home communities, wind farms, toll roads, parking meter systems, because they can. And and obviously they can, as you as you hinted, because the state says they can. So there's there's nothing in theory at least to stop government saying no. Um we don't think this is an appropriate um investment space for asset managers. We are going to stop them buying things. Of course governments could do that if they chose to do so. We can maybe come back later to why they don't do so, but they could. So yes, it, in general, the state has pl plays a role. Um, in fact, I'm gonna, there are going to be three parts to the answer rather than two. I just I just realised that. Sorry about it. Second part of the answer is is that it, 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 and and many many people listening might already have figured this out for themselves, but they've played a more direct role in many ways because obviously a lot of these assets were actually conventionally owned by the state, whether in the form of central government or, for example, municipal uh, government actors. So, so um, for example, in Germany, to take that as an example, a lot of the um, major um, housing portfolios that traditionally were owned by municipalities, both, both in the form of West Germany and in the form of East Germany, in the 1990s and 2000s were sold off precisely to asset management companies like Blackstone, like Fortress, like Cerberus and various others. Um, so the government played a very, very direct role there. And again, look at the UK. Asset managers like Macquarie have become major owners of the water, the water and wastewater networks in the UK in, in recent times. Well, they could only buy those things because the government decided to privatize those assets in the first place back at the end of the 1980s. So that's the second government role is not just enabling them to buy them, but actually selling them. These were things that were publicly owned, but that are now, uh, in many cases, publicly owned that are now privately owned. And then the third uh, role, which again, some listeners might uh, be aware of, is is another important one, which is that, which is that, a lot of these assets um, that asset managers have bought, asset managers, when buying them, have considered those to be relatively risky purchases. They've thought, we would like to buy these. We would like to buy, for example, this, um, this line on a subway system. But we're worried that um, over the next 10 years, the number of passengers using this um subway system might decline and therefore we don't want to buy this subway system because of that. So what governments have often done in those circumstances to encourage asset managers to invest is they said, okay, 
we will come in and we will um, essentially remove and shoulder some of the risk that you don't want to take on. So in the case of a subway line, for example, they'll come in and say, okay, if 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 passenger numbers fall and revenues fall below a certain level, we will guarantee a certain level of income to you, the investor, as a way to yeah. encourage you to make that investment. So what, what Daniela Gabor uh, calls a de-risking state. Yeah, I mean, it's... Okay, I mean, it's not her term. That no. term existed for a long time, but she's sort of popularized it. That's that's exactly right. So governments come in. Um, I mean, the, the term was is, was was used for has been used for a long time by governments and private sector investors. Precisely, that's right. Um, the government will come in and remove that risk to in, encourage the investment to take place. And my view on all of that is that in some cases, what they're doing is necessary. By which I mean. Um, necessary to precipitate the investment so private sector investors would not invest unless the government um shouldered some of that risk i think in other cases it's less clear that that's the case i think in some cases the private sector would probably invest anyway but the government like just comes along and sweetens the deal so yes the government the government plays a, is a central role in all of this for precisely those three sets of reasons that i've mentioned and Brett, this is the question I, I have to ask. It corresponds so much to what you've already said. It's more about the historical embedding of uh, the, the role of the state and the refraining role of the state. So uh, how, how does asset manager society, as you explain it, relate to the rise of neoliberalism, right? Where you had this huge wave of privatization yeah. um, and institutional and legal reordering to markets where there were no markets before, right? The marketization yeah. of so many things of society. At the same time, also uh, austerity, where states retreat from certain um, parts of society, stop spending there. I mean, there's also a lot of talk about fiscal consolidation and austerity again these days. Uh, although we did experience, I guess, a revival of the, the importance of the role of the state during the pandemic. So yeah, in what way does asset manager society relate to neoliberalism and what does that say about neoliberalism. Um, oh, sorry, one more thing before you answer. Uh, if anyone has any questions to Brad, please put them in the Q&A uh, tab. So I already see there are some questions in the chat. Um, it's easiest if you put them in the Q&A tab because then other people might also upload them. Back to you, Brad. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you've 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 already, um, in asking the question, you've already sort of hinted at sort the of. Um <laughs> Which is always which is always the sign of a good question. Um, I mean, I guess I, I, what I would say is that it, it's pretty clear that what I refer to as asset manager society, so the, the, the you know the, the the expansion of the ownership and control of these types of physical assets by asset managers, could not have happened to anything like the degree it has without the emergence of what we call neoliberalism, um, and indeed. It is arguably a creature of neo neoliberalism, and I suppose there are, um, I, I suppose there are two connected or linked aspects of that. Um, you know, you know, one is 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 the fact that a central um, component of, uh, of of neoliberal political economy in most parts of the world, at any rate, has been. Um, has been an attempt to introduce competition where previously it didn't exist. So let's take 
Um, as an example, uh, one that I'm uh, I'm quite familiar with myself is electricity. Is electricity, which you know, historically in most in most parts of the world, electricity systems were controlled by single government-owned actors that controlled everything from gen- generation through transmission and distribution. And in the 1980s and increasingly in the 1990s, policymakers and their and their economic advisors said, well, okay, we think that um, consumers will get a better deal if, 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 if instead of everything being controlled by one, one actor, if we can introduce um, competition to, to at least to parts of the, of the value chain of electricity generation and distribution where it's possible to have competition, principally in generation and in retail, so the two ends, um, and so that was a kind of that was a that was a very much a kind of neoliberal a part of neoliberal orthodoxy and still is part part of neoliberal orthodoxy, um, and and selling off government assets, so unbundling things like electricity systems into generation assets, transmission assets, distribution assets, retail assets, and then selling them off to the private sector, including to include including increasingly to asset managers, was absolutely was absolutely part of that. So competition was part of it, but but the other one, of course, was 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 and I you know what I would personally consider to be you know almost kind of the central um, ideology of neoliberalism is the ideology that the government and the public sector more broadly should own as little as possible of anything, um, you know, and I for me that's always been. The central tenet of what I understand to be neoliberalism, and, and still is the central tenet of neoliberalism, which is, you know, as an aside, almost is precisely why I don't understand it when people say these days, "Oh, you know, we're at the end of neoliberalism." Well, no, because there's nothing has changed in at all in that orthodoxy. There's no sense of a return, you know, in places like the UK and the US, at any rate, to, to widespread public ownership of, of these sorts of assets. Um, so, if you take that as as the as the orthodoxy, then for sure, asset manager society is a creature of neoliberalism because neoliberalism said the state should own as little of, as, as possible of anything. So the types of things that the governments used to own, like housing, like uh, utility infrastructure, should instead be owned and controlled by the private sector. Uh, and that's what happened. Um, and, and as you said, today, um, that orthodoxy remains. Um, so, you know, the best example of that would be something like renewable energy, where where the orthodoxy across most of the world, and there are you know there are exceptions. China is a partial exception, where but where the orthodoxy is, look, we need you know vast amounts of new climate infrastructures, particularly for mitigation purposes, but also for adaptation, and the, and the orthodoxy is that that. Sh- that infrastructure should be developed and owned and operated by the private sector and that to the extent that the public sector has a role it is purely about kind of providing nudges providing incentives in the form principally of various forms of de-risking whether that be in tariffs or tax credits or whatever else it might be absolutely yes i suppose your next book will be will be covering that uh terrain that's exactly what it's about um yeah it is almost uh, uh, time to go to the Q and A from participants, but yeah, if if, if I may, uh, just just another question is uh, about the the geography of this. 
and what we can learn from it. Um, so when we talk about these more intimate parts of society, housing, childcare, I mean, they are all very part of the national type of capitalism, national institutions, uh, historically grown. Uh, they are very separate in one country from the other. Um, not always, uh, but in, in many cases they are. Um, do you think you can you can say that there are certain countries that are more closed off to to these yeah investment strategies and and what could we learn from those countries that are more closed off that have more of defensive uh, yeah strategies in place? Yeah, so very. I mean, absolutely. We uh, won't be surprised to hear this because uh, you know I'm I like you. I'm a I'm a I'm a geographer. Um, I mean. Yeah, one of the things I emphasize, particularly in the Our Lives in Their Portfolios book, is that all of this, the kind of emergence and materialization of asset manager society is highly geographically variegated, both across and within countries. Um, I mean, I think it's I think it's worth saying that, um, you know, there, there are big, big differences across Europe, for example, in, in the extent to which this has occurred and there's huge differences between um, the global north and the global south, I think, in, in, particularly in terms of kind of the historical trajectory of this. And I'm happy to get into that in more detail in, if, if we have some questions from from listeners. But I mean, yes, I mean, I think that, um, you know, at one end of the spectrum, you have a country like the UK that in terms of infrastructure, at any rate, the housing story is a bit different. But in terms of utility infrastructures the, the uk has essentially sold off pretty much everything that that can be sold off but the, but there are definitely other countries um you know i think france would would possibly be a good example of this where um there's been much less um enthusiasm for privatizing key infrastructures you know energy would be a good example of that almost all of the electricity system in France for example across the value chain is still controlled by EDF which is a which is a which is a public publicly owned entity um and I think there are also so those are so those are countries that have n not gone as far down the road um as as the UK in the first place but there are also countries that have sort of tried to almost kind of row back where asset managers have made significant inroads or at least have attempted to make inroads into buying up um, the types of assets that we've been talking about, and it's elicited negative reactions across society, and governments have kind of responded to that and have said, um, yeah, actually, maybe we need to rethink this. And just, you know, one very local, and, and I guess a limited example will be, but in, it's an example I like, would be in terms of housing in Denmark. So in Copenhagen uh, in the late 2010s, um, uh, private equity firms like Blackstone, in particular, became very aggressive buyers of housing um, in, Copen in Copenhagen, and subsequently were putting up rents very, very aggressively. Um, and the government, a new, a new uh, left-wing government, took power. I think it was in 2019, and actually introduced a new clause to the housing to the main housing law in Denmark. Um, which actually became known colloquially as the Blackstone Paragraph or the Blackstone Clause, which was which was designed essentially to limit the ability of of the likes of Blackstone 
to buy up this housing and then to put through those aggressive uh, rent increases in, in the way that they had been doing. So there are, as I say, there are things that can be done. However, um, I would say that very few, and this is kind of a depressing note to end on before the question, before the questions, I would say that very few um, governments around the world are doing that. And I would also say that very few are likely to do it going forward. And there's a simple reason for that. And it's this, and it goes back to to to, to what we were just talking about um, uh, just now about neoliberalism, which is that not only do most governments not see asset managers as a problem or as the problem, they actually see them as the solution. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, everywhere you look in the world, today, essentially, there is a broad consensus that there needs to be massive future investment in housing. You know, there are housing shortages in most major urban regions of the world. So there needs to be massive future investment in housing. And there needs to be massive future investment in infrastructure, particularly climate infrastructure. Again, mitigation and that adaptation. Now, if there's, a, if there's an acceptance that you need massive investment, but you have governments that have have been convinced or have convinced themselves that governments themselves shouldn't be doing that investment because of you know fiscal conservatism because of not wanting to take on government debts especially now that interest rates have gone up from the low levels they were at in the previous decade then essentially governments are in a place where there is no other answer than the private sector if governments are not going to carry out that investment themselves and once you begin to say that the private sector is the answer, pretty soon you arrive directly at asset managers because asset managers control the vast bulk of surplus capital around the world today. So governments essentially see asset managers as the answer to these investment problems because they've decided that governments themselves aren't the answer. So, you know, if you listen, if you listen to what politicians around the world are saying today about who's going to answer the housing investment challenge, who's going to answer the infrastructure uh, and climate infrastructure investment challenge, they see BlackRock as the answer. They see Blackstone as the answer. They don't see them as part of the problem. And to me, at any rate, that's a massive problem. Yeah, you could almost call it ironic if it wasn't so sad. But yeah, let's try to get to some very cheerful questions then. Uh, the most upvoted question now is by Miriam van der Stichelen, and it's about international trade and trade treaties. So I think another neoliberal regime. And Miriam asks, international trade and investment treaties and national and EU laws with a neoliberal competition objective have allowed asset managers to freely buy and get rent all across the world. Which authorities and regulations would stop the increasing role of private equity traditional asset managers and freely flowing capital rents around the world and tax havens. So the question is specifically about which authorities and regulations. Um, I know that you just gave a wonderful speech on the lack of, you know, uh, <laughs> um, good policy of these same authorities, but maybe you can sketch some, um, um, yeah, concrete steps, a vision or examples where things are being perhaps put back in public hands or where you see actually uh, regulation that does um, put asset managers uh, back into their place. Yeah, that's a good, that's a that's a good question to which I don't have a very good answer. I suppose I suppose that the 
the, the question points towards two things, which is that the reason that major asset managers, the bulk of which, let's be clear about this, the bulk of which are headquartered in North America, um, particularly the US, the, the ability, the reason that they can um, and do buy up um, these sorts of assets around, increasingly around the whole world is essentially twofold. So one is that money can, their money can can flow relatively easily around the world because the types of capital controls that, that the world had in the post-war era don't exist anymore. So capital can flow essentially freely around the world without uh, the types of restrictions there were historically. And then secondly, once that capital lands in a particular country, um, it, it is able to buy up the, the, the types of assets we've been talking about, whether that's in Spain or whether that's in Nigeria or whether that's in um, well, South America somewhere. So there are, there are two sorts of things there. Uh, and, and obviously, significant restrictions on either of those things would, um, I guess, potentially have a chilling effect on 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 the phenomenon. It would it would potentially limit or even stop the phenomenon. Um, but also, as I said, I, I don't see many signs of that happening. I mean, and I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I, I go back to Denmark because I think it's an interesting case. One other thing that happened there. Um, was that when Macquarie, so Macquarie for a long time, the Australian asset manager I talked about earlier, was a, was for several years the majority owner of the Copenhagen Airport. And when it bought into the airport, it kind of it, it kind of said, oh, you know, we're a long term investor, we're in it for the long haul, we're you know, we're going to invest in the asset, we're going to create an asset that is, um, you know, flourishing in the long term and so on. And 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 as is typically the case, it sold out relatively few years later and that really pissed off many politicians in Denmark particularly particularly on the left and and I think there were calls at that point as I recall um to actually put in place um measures to prevent foreign ownership of of, of nationally valuable or nationally key assets I can't remember the particular language that was used now that didn't happen in the end but I believe that Denmark did introduce new measures that required a screening process for the screening of possible overseas investors in in nationally uh, sensitive assets or whatever they were called. So things like that can be done. But again, that's generally not what's happening. Generally, um, and, and I just wonder, there's one other thing I want to say, because I think it's very, very important. Generally, the opposite is happening. The world is opening up in various ways. And 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 what you find, and this is very very important, is what you find is when governments even make the the slightest noise about potentially um, clamping down on regulation around the investment in these types of assets, immediately asset managers say, "Okay, if you're going to make things more difficult for us, we're just going to withdraw investment. We're, we're actually." If if you the if you you in the UK for example are going to clamp down on regulation of investment in the water sector, which has been which the the regulator Ofwat has repeatedly said it will do over the years, but has never done. The immediate day it says that, you have press releases from the big asset managers saying, okay, if if the UK is going to start playing playing hard, we're just not going to invest. And as soon as that happens, the government thinks shit. 
we can't do this because then we're not going to get the investment we need. And so the asset managers just play this game where they kind of threaten to do things and then governments that have begun to make even very, very soft noises about increased regulation, get cold feet and don't do anything after all. Yeah, increasingly problematic indeed. Um, we have time for one more question. So um, I'm going to ask you to be brief, Brett, but it's a relevant question. So we're going to ask it. It's by Jessica Parrish, who says, a great presentation and conversation. Thank you so much. Her question is on the point of competition and privatization of public assets and utilities. So my understanding is that in the UK, this has absolutely not lowered costs for consumers or improved services. I think it's a known story. I'm thinking of the energy strike against massive escalation in costs. The wastewater scandal is another example. Anyhow, how do we account for the continued power of this when these logics or problems don't hold up? Relevant question, and you have two minutes, Brett. Okay, justification. Yeah. Justification. Um, we're back to Corey. I mean, I think I think you're right. Um, and and um, and 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 my understanding is absolutely. And I talk about this in the rentier capitalism book. Is it, you know, in the UK across all of the sectors that have been fundamentally privatized, it has. I think the evidence is very compelling that it has not been a good deal for consumers. It's been a good deal for investors and that investors have done well, partly because consumers have gone down. Prices prices have gone up at, at, at very high rates over the last couple of decades. So I think the one exception to that is probably telecoms. But there, I think consumers have done well, not because of privatization, but because mobile came along and actually provided strong competition to fix line telephony. And that's the main reason for telecoms consumers doing well. So despite the fact that this has been bad for consumers, and despite the fact that even outlets like the Financial Times, you know, all of their writers, I think if you look, if you read them carefully, essentially admit that privatization in the UK has been a disaster for consumers. Nothing changes. Why? I th- you know, I, I, I don't have a good answer to that other than the fact that and this goes again, this goes back to the point earlier about the grip of neoliberal orthodoxy, the grip of neoliberal orthodoxy on policymakers in places like the UK, on both the right and the nominal left in the Labour Party is so strong that the idea of doing anything differently, substantially differently, like public ownership is just beyond the political pale. And so there's just this poverty of the political imagination. And, and to me, that is the is the main answer, and, and a lot of that comes back to you know the hold of the the hold of the media, the hold of the press, uh, the fact that as long as soon as you get politicians coming along like like Corbyn and like Labour under Corbyn that even hint at a different way of doing things, they get slaughtered by the media, and politicians run scared. So I think that 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 to me is the answer: is a poverty of the political imagination in a landscape where right wing media have an enormous degree of power. Thanks a lot, Brett. So, I mean, that's perhaps not the most positive note to end on. I do think maybe we one day can organize um, some kind of brainstorm with all the crash course participants and speakers on how to fill this intellectual and imaginary sure. gap. I have one thing I, uh, we forgot to mention, and that's that Brett is also visiting uh, the Netherlands for those who are here. Uh, so the 6th of March, uh, he will be visiting uh, the Dependance in Rotterdam. And the seventh, uh, Spui 25 with Abel Engelen. Uh, and we will be discussing all of these things in uh, probably in, and we will have more time. So just yeah. 
And that's that's right. And that's to talk about um, energy and energy transition and and the climate change. Great, yeah, and great that we can continue the conversation there. So thank you so much, Brett. The recording will be put online as well as a podcast version. And thank you all for participating in the second webinar of Crash Course on Rentier and Multi Capitalism. And the next one is on February the fifteenth at four o'clock again on Rentierism and Big Pharma. There was also a question on Big Pharma, so good to discuss that there. Uh, on the show, we'll have uh, Nick Durden, who's been a campaigner against corporate globalization and for global economic justice for more than two decades. And he is the director of uh, the British NGO Global Justice Now. I think he was even present today. And we also know, Brett, that you have uh, a question for Nick, right? That he could perhaps answer during the next crash course. Nick, you're not allowed to answer it immediately. Yes. Uh, should, I, should I ask the question now? Yes, if you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my my question that I had for Nick was that um, a lot of people have said and argued that um, the rapid and uh, development and rollout, but particularly the rapid development of COVID nineteen vaccines um, in um, in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, can be seen as kind of a validation of the existing global uh, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, lots of people have made that argument. And I would be interested to hear uh, what Nick makes of that argument. Great. We'll make sure to uh, to come back to that. So thanks a lot, uh, Brett, again. Thanks for having me. Yes, see you in Amsterdam, hopefully. And uh, thanks all for participating. If you want to keep updated, you can sign up uh, for our newsletter. Visit our website. Uh, it's in the chat, crashcourseeconomics.org. Hope to see you again in two weeks' time. Bye, everyone. Okay, bye-bye.